We're gonna be in Matthew 5. We're gonna go from verse 1 down to about verse 16. Uh, but for a little bit, it's going to feel like we're not moving quick. And that's because I'm only going to hit the last verses real quick. You know how you do like sermon math where you're like 25 minutes in and they've only done like the first four verses. And then you get really worried that they've forgotten about how long a teaching should be. I know. Don't worry. It's just going to feel that way for a while. So let's pray. And then we'll jump right in to Matthew chapter five, living with and like Jesus. Father, thank you so much for the chance to look at your word, for the chance to be with you, for the chance to be with one another. We pray that you would have your hand on this time, that you would speak to us, that you would make yourself known, that this wouldn't be another night or another teaching, but this would be a moment that we knew we lived with you, where we sensed you moving among us, where we sensed you speaking, and where your word was changing our lives from the inside out. So we love you, God. We pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Without looking at your phone, do you think that the world's tallest redwood tree is taller or shorter than 200 feet? Do you think it's taller or shorter than 200 feet? Think about it. If you think it's taller, raise your hand. Hey, if I block the light, it works. If you think it's shorter than that, raise your hand. Cool. I'm not going to ask, we're not going to like, now get the shorter people. Like, we're not going to do that. Don't worry, it's going to be fine. Now think, now think an exact number. How tall exactly do you think the world's tallest redwood tree is? Just think of a number and keep it in your mind. I bring this up because there was an Israeli scientist and mathematician and spirit brother of Daniel and Alan Kahn, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, who did this experiment where he brought a group of people together. And he said, do you think the world's tallest redwood tree is taller or shorter than 200 feet? And they all gave answers. And then he said, okay, exactly how tall do you think it is? And on average, they guessed that it was about 280 feet. He took another group of people and he had them come in and he said, do you think the world's tallest redwood tree is taller or shorter than 1,200 feet. And they all had their thoughts and opinions. Then he said, okay, exactly how tall do you think the world's tallest redwood tree is? They guessed 900 feet. He came up with the concept called anchoring. When we get this little bit of data, that 200 or that 1,200, even if you don't like it, and even if you think it's wrong, when you go to form your opinion, it's really hard to get out of your head. And your opinion is shaped by that little bit of data, even if you don't like it. The actual world's tallest redwood tree, by the way, is about 380 feet. So if you had that in mind, well done. If you didn't, don't worry, I was tricking you. That was always part of this. We are prone to be anchored in small bits of information we have, whether we like that information or not. Why do I bring that up now? Because I think that's super important to think about when we talk about sharing Jesus with other people. The people around us are anchored in their opinion of who God and who Jesus is. They're anchored in their views, even if they've only had really small bits of data about Jesus or really bad bits of data 
about Jesus. It's very hard to get that out of your head when you're trying to think about anything. You're anchored in whatever that first opinion you have is. So some people are walking around with the idea that God is rule-focused, that we have a rule-focused God. God primarily wants you to just do good stuff and be a good person. They think of God as the giver of the Ten Commandments, the one who creates a bunch of rules on top of that, and the God that's mad at you when you fail. Maybe that was their first experience of who they thought God was, and so it becomes very difficult to pull away from that experience. You get anchored in it. Some people are anchored in the idea of the political God, that he's the God that backs one party or another. He's the God that's for your policies and is against other people's policies. And this happens on both sides of the aisle. This happens for Republicans. They'll end up thinking that God stands behind them and wants to win America back to a certain kind of standing for Democrats. They might look at it the same way and think that God is looking to stand in the way of the progress that they're looking to make. But when they think of God, they think of the term, the Christian vote, before they think of the Christian church. They're anchored in that opinion. They think that Jesus primarily wants to fix a country. There's also people that are anchored in the idea of the affirming God. There's some people that think that like God is really angry and mean, but Jesus is just super cool. And that Jesus, like, you don't even have to worry about your sin. Like, God's the one who's angry, but you talk to Jesus, who's like his cool son. He's like, don't worry, I'll talk to dad. You're fine. And just like, that's the relationship that they can have. And there, the primary thing that Jesus wants is just to be like a cool grandma. You know, like, you've never told your grandma anything that you've done wrong, and she's done more than like, oh, I'll feed you. Like, you know, like, you can't really get in terrible, she will love you. Like there are murderer grandmas, grandmas of murderers, not grandmas who do the murdering. (laughs) Hope you got that. Who are just like still so desperately in love with their grandchildren. We think of Jesus as like, oh yeah, he's the one that'll just love me no matter what. And he'll be cool. They get anchored in that opinion of him. The problem is that none of these are the real God. None of these are the real Jesus. So when we want to share Jesus with people, what we really need to be thinking about is we need to give people a second first impression of who Jesus is. We need to give people a second first impression of who Jesus is, which has got to be one of the hardest things to possibly do. Like, it's insane to think, I need to unanchor you from something you've believed and held so tightly and dear for so long and show you how something about your first impression was incorrect so that you could see Jesus for who he really is. For some of us here tonight, we need a second first impression of Jesus because we're anchored in some bad ways of thinking about him. So tonight, what I really want to show us is that Jesus primarily, before any other idea of him that we might be anchored in, Jesus primarily wants us to live with him and invite others to live with him. We could be done right now, and that is the whole point of the message. Jesus primarily wants us to live with him and to invite others to live with him. So to show you that, we come to Matthew chapter 5. We'll jump into the text now. Now, Matthew 5, if you don't know, this is the beginning of three chapters of the book of Matthew that get called the Sermon on the Mount. 
This is the first time in the book of Matthew where a teaching of Jesus is gonna be recorded for more than a sentence. So this is the longest chunk of Jesus' teaching. And this is specifically Jesus announcing to people, here's what the kingdom of God is really all about. If you wanna be part of the kingdom of God, here's what it's about, here's who you'll become, here's the ethic of the new kingdom that I'm looking to bring to the earth. And he had to do a lot of unlearning with people so that they could learn this new way of living with Jesus. Jonathan Pennington puts it like this. Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now and in the age to come. So in a sense, Jesus is doing exactly what we're talking about with unanchoring people. The crowd that he's talking to, these were Jewish people that had Jewish expectations. They expected a conquering king. They expected a fight. They expected that when the Messiah would come, he'd bring an army with him. They'd overthrow oppressors and they would set up a particular government. And Jesus is here to show them a very different kind of kingdom. Jesus is unanchoring them from their wrong expectations based on what they were reading in the Old Testament. So how did he do that? He showed them a few things they should be. Let's look at Matthew chapter five. And in verse three, Jesus begins this sermon. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't this sound like a terrible way to begin an announcement? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Like there's this ad that I keep seeing for like this particular workout bike on YouTube where like, you know, the five seconds before you get to skip the ad and that's all that you get to see. Uh, in those five seconds, it's like this super intense guy and he just like mocks you a little bit. He's like, I don't know why you're watching this. And the whole thing is like, this is a workout bike for like intense people. But like he gets mad at you and I'm so happy to hit the button every time. I'm just like, fine, it's not for me. I don't want to buy it. Go away, angry man. Like, I just get so upset with him. If this were Jesus's first five seconds to his YouTube ad, this would be a very skippable ad. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All right, I don't want to be that. Like, that sounds like a terrible thing. But this is important for Jesus to begin with because this is the beginning of all healthy relationship with God. When it's saying blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not talking about financial poverty or just being down on yourself or being depressed or anything like that. Instead, what this is talking about is awareness of our own spiritual brokenness. This is awareness that on a deep core level, something isn't right in each of us. On the deepest level of who we are, something isn't working and we don't really know what to do about it. Some people today really embrace that idea. You know, the phrase, it's okay not to be okay, is getting used a lot more recently than it has been in times past. There is something really beautiful, just on a human level, about embracing our brokenness, but sometimes we just embrace it and say, well, hey, if we're all broken, then it's not really that big of a deal, and we can all just stay broken together. We may not always find solutions to the problems or the brokenness that we're trying to fix. Others just try to flat out reject their brokenness. 
You know, this is the state of bumper stickers that say Jersey strong. You know, we will just be better than whatever problem is coming our way. We'll just be stronger and fitter and smarter and more able to overcome than any obstacle that comes at us. We try to push back on the fact that we're broken, but Jesus says, just embrace it. Blessing comes to the people who are poor in spirit. Spiritual thriving is only available to the person that first recognizes spiritual brokenness. This is our beginning point. This is where Jesus wants us to start. When he starts by announcing the new kingdom, he says, first, just be aware that something is wrong and don't let it turn you to too much despair. But in verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, this is not instructing us, just go find every sad thing and go try to be sad about it. Like, that's not, it's not like just a, hey, if you're mourning, good job. Like, that's not what Jesus is trying to say here. Rather, I think that this beatitude or this verse is a response to what goes on in the verse before it. When we recognize we're poor in spirit, the response shouldn't be, Jersey strong or just staying stuck in it or anything like that, but it should be mourning over that brokenness. This mourning is a reaction to understanding our spiritual poverty. There's going to be a couple illustrations through this message that involves bikes. Here's one of them. I've started riding bikes recently. Super fun. You should do it. Um, recently, I went on a bike ride with like four or five people. We went down to Pennsylvania, and the specific goal was we were going to ride on hills here's the thing. Hills are hard. They're just really difficult. Gravity is still very much in effect and it makes me sad. And when I'm riding around here, fortunately this area is pretty flat. So like I'll see like a small hill and I'll just get mad at it. I'll be like, I'm better than you. Why are you slowing me down? And I'll like try really hard and then I'll be like panting at the top of it. But when we went on this ride in Pennsylvania, we were going for like maybe five minutes and we encountered a hill that I promise you felt like a wall. Like we, we were first looking at it and like at first you're like, oh, that's not that bad. Oh God, that's terrible. Oh God, it gets worse. Like it just eventually, it was so discouraging. Like none of us actually made it to the top of that hill riding. Like we all had to stop and walk our bikes up and we were just so terrified that like, is this what every hill afterwards is going to be? And that was the worst one, it was fine. But as we were going up that hill, that initial reaction I had of like, I will be better than you, hill, the hill very much proved me wrong. And I had to reach a point where just in sadness, I realized I am not better than this hill. This hill is better than me. I'll just walk the bike to the top and accept my defeat. We need to kind of accept defeat over the fact that we're born spiritually broken. If we think we've got a shot to get up that hill, we're in trouble. If we think we've got a shot to get to the top of that hill, we're only gonna be more tired when we eventually give up. We're only gonna be more exhausted when we finally stop. And if we're not careful, our effort to try to be good enough for God will become something we blame God for letting us try in the first place. He doesn't ask you to try. He says, hey, you're poor in spirit. That's good, accept it. Mourn over that. Let that break you. Let that hurt a little bit. And then go on to verse five, where it says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
I think all three of these that we've seen so far, these create the attitude that we need to first come to Jesus with. They need to create the attitude that we first come to Jesus with. Now, this word meek gets used two other places in the book of Matthew. One time is in Matthew 11, right after Jesus says, come to me uh, if you're burdened or heavy laden and I will give you rest. And he says, I'll put my yoke upon you. And he says, my yoke is easy. That's the same word, meek. My yoke is easy. It's not difficult. It's not burdensome. It's gentle. And that's the second time that it gets you, or the third time, I should say, in Matthew 21, when Jesus enters Jerusalem and they were looking for a mighty king and he shows up on a lowly donkey. When the Bible says that Jesus arrived humble, that's this word meek again. The response to all of this isn't we will overcome. It's just an admission that we can't overcome. It's a gentleness. It's an easiness. The response to all of this brokenness that we sense is not I'll figure it out and I'll make this better. It's I can't make this better and I need to be okay with that because there is one who can make it better. That's our response when we first go to Jesus. Now, if we just kind of keep all these three things together, the idea of being poor in spirit and being meek uh, and being... um, mourning over our brokenness, isn't all of this stuff like super relatable? Like this isn't stuff that we have to train ourselves for. This is stuff where we just got to be honest with ourselves about. Like if we're just real about our actual condition, we'll come to this place all on our own. Like we don't need to try to be poor in spirit. We already are. We don't need to try to mourn about it. If we're just aware of our own brokenness, that'll happen. I remember one time, I was teaching uh, the junior high youth group at this church and I was presenting the gospel, trying to get students to respond to it or at least give them the opportunity to respond to it. And I didn't want to use the word sin as I was presenting the gospel because I felt like that's just a church word and it might not really mean anything to the students I was talking about or talking to. Uh, So the word that I used instead of sin was, I said, you know that brokenness that you just like feel deep down and you can't do anything about? And I watched every student just go like, oh, like everyone knew. I didn't have to explain any further. I was just like, you know that like, ugh, like I'm just a bad person and I can't fix me. And everyone was just like, yeah, I know (laughs) I'm bad. Like they all just got it. And we were together in that. That's being human. If we're just honest with ourselves, that is true. So what do we do about it? What does Jesus want for us? He doesn't want us to just sit in that brokenness. He wants that brokenness to create something in us. And that's in verse six. Jesus says here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Now this is, I believe, the most important of all the Beatitudes that get listed. I think this is, is the change point in the Beatitudes. The first three are the attitude we need to come to Jesus with. This is what changes us. And then the rest are the result. So let's really break this one down. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you like gun to your head right now had to define righteousness, do you feel like you could do it confidently in two sentences or less? Like probably not. 
like realistically, we don't feel like we totally have an understanding of what that word means. I know for me, because it had right in it, I just always thought like, yeah, righteousness is like when you do right stuff, like when you Bible read and when you help old ladies cross the street, but now you got to figure out how to do it from six feet away so you don't murder them with COVID. Like, you know, when you do good stuff, like that's righteousness. That's what it must be talking about. But really, righteousness is about being in right standing with someone. It's not about right deeds. It's about right relationship. It's about setting right whatever was broken. So think about the friendships you have where you've been able to just go over their house. You just let yourself in their front door. You just like hang out in their room with them. Neither of you say anything. And when you leave, you're like, that was great. I loved that. Like those friendships were like, you don't need to talk. You don't need to be doing anything. Like you don't need any structure to be able to hang out with each other. You just need to be with them. That is a relationship where there's righteousness. You two are so right with each other you don't need anything else. You're just good. You're settled. There's nothing you need to fix. There's nothing you need to set in order. And yet we've all had moments where you've gone to hang out with somebody because you needed to talk. And you know, like when you first get to the coffee shop, when you need to talk with them and you don't want to start the heavy conversation of why you're mad with them when you're ordering. So you just talk about like the most ridiculous things that you find in the coffee shop. You're like, oh, that menu's like really brown. Just because like you don't know what to talk about, but you know you need to just fill the time until you both sit down. That's where there isn't righteousness in the relationship. Something is wrong between you two that needs to be set right. What Jesus is telling us here is that we need to hunger and thirst not to do a bunch of good stuff, but we need to long for our relationship with Jesus to be set right again. That's what Jesus is asking us for here. He says, hunger and thirst for your relationship to be set right. That great problem, that inner brokenness, that thing we all feel but can't describe, but know is wrong. That is an awareness that something is wrong with our relationship with God. That's what that is. It's an awareness that righteousness isn't happening. There isn't that right standing between us and God or things in us promote unrighteousness, promote the breaking down of that relationship with us and God. So we need that right relationship again. What do we do? We're told to simply hunger and thirst for it. We're not told here are the steps to make it right again. We're just told to long for it. I think about in Luke chapter 18, there's a moment where somebody comes up to Jesus and they say, hey, so like, what's the good stuff I got to do so that I can go to heaven? Like, that's the basic idea. I mean, he asked it in another language, but, you know, that's basically what he said. He's like, what's the good stuff I got to, like, give me the list. I want to go to heaven. So just like, show me the stuff I got to do. And then I'll get to live forever. Like show, the assumption was there's things I'm not doing. And that's why that brokenness is there. And what Jesus is trying to show us is that it's not there's stuff for you to do. It's simply that you're not hungering for that right thing. That's what Jesus wants from us, just to hunger and thirst for right relationship. I mean, think about hunger is probably like the strongest motivator we have, right? 
Like just, Jesus didn't say, I want you to like kind of want righteousness. He told us hunger and thirst for righteousness. Ron Swanson gave us three great motivators. He said, people are only motivated by money, fear, and hunger. Jesus knew that this is a super powerful motivator. And he stacks it up, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Long for it desperately. Recognize you can't run right without it. Like when you go a few hours without a meal, your stomach makes the suggestion that it's time to eat. When you go like a day without a meal, it makes the demand that it's time to eat. And when you go like a month without a meal, the rest of your body's like, all right, forget this guy. We're just giving up and that, that's it. Like you need this stuff. Like it's not something that you can go without if you wanted to. Jesus wants us to see right relationship with God as something we absolutely cannot live without. We simply need to crave it desperately. I've loved, I've, I've heard people use the phrase that what we should be doing with Jesus is more than just putting faith in him, but pledging allegiance to him. I love that idea. That idea of pledging loyalty to Jesus. That's what he wants from us, that we just hunger and thirst for him so much that all we want in life is just to be right with him. And if we have that hunger, what's the result of that? Well, Jesus simply says, they will be filled. He doesn't say, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'll give you the cookbook for how to make righteousness so that you can eat and be filled. He doesn't say, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you'll do these things so that you can be filled. He simply says, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. This is the beautiful thing about God. He loves forgiving. He loves welcoming us back to him. He loves taking our broken relationships with him and putting them back in order. God promises to do this work when we come to him. He promises to set us back to right relationship with him. When we say, God, I'm broken and I need you. He says, I know, let's hang out. Let's be friends again. Let's put this relationship back in order because it's a relationship that's not built on the stuff we do for God. It's a relationship that's built on the cross and on the resurrection of Jesus. By Jesus rising from the dead, the, the biggest thing that could have separated us from him the idea that sin would lead to death, that would lead to separation, all of that is now conquered. So now the only thing that can stand between us and God is our unwillingness to want him. The only thing that can slow us down from God is our unwillingness to hunger and thirst for him. That's all he asks for, simply the desire. This is what the Bible has always been about. The Old Testament prophets, they predict all this different stuff, but they did it so that when they told the people of Israel, hey, put your idols away or you're going to end up being destroyed. They only predicted that stuff so that they'd be believed about the idols and so that they'd be believed about trust God more than anything. Trust God more than anything. Give up everything else. Those were validators of the fact that their message was actually from God. What God has always wanted is just people that hunger and thirst for him, that just crave him more than anything. So then once we have that right relationship, once we've been set back to that right order, what comes next? 
the next three Beatitudes. They come easily to us now. In verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Once we're set back to right order with God, once we've been shown mercy and we've been welcomed back in, it is so easy to be merciful. It's much, much easier to be generous and gracious with other people because we think about the mercy we've been shown and it becomes really easy to say, all right, well, I've been forgiven a ton so I can forgive these smaller things. This is how God wants us to reach out. He wants us to be merciful to other people. It tells us in verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And it tells us in verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. See, this is what happens when we are set right. We will be merciful. We will be pure in heart and we will be peacemakers. All of this comes from spending time with Jesus. That's all it takes. When we're with him, and when we're set right with him, we will naturally show others how they can be set right with him. It's like when you hang out with that one friend of yours and you start picking up their mannerisms, you start saying things that they're saying, you start picking up the interests that they might have. It's the same principle. When we're with Jesus, we'll pick up his interests. We'll pick up his habits. We'll pick up his tendencies. And those tendencies are to show mercy. They're to be focused on God's will being accomplished here on earth. They're to become peacemakers. And I can't think of a time where the world has needed peacemakers more than right now. I can't think of a moment where it's been more important to be a person of peace than in a crazy, divided world. Now, Jesus does give us this one warning. Look at verse 10. It tells us this. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you in, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why does Jesus bring this one up now? Because when we live in right relationship with Jesus, it will be confusing to others. And if history has shown us anything, we are really mean to people that confuse us. That's just what happens. We don't like different. We look down on different. We attack different. That will happen when we are different because we're in right standing with Jesus. And difficulty can often make us think something is wrong. Second bike, third bike illustration. Yeah, I'm racking them up. Um, did you know that the pedals on each side of a bike have threads in the opposite direction? Neither did I until the first time I went to change the pedals on a super expensive bike that didn't belong to me. So what happened was we needed to switch out the pedals real quick because some you like clip into and I wasn't good at that. And so I was scared. And so I got like the regular like eight-year-old pedals. So we were taking off the really good ones and I went to put on, you know, the little kid ones. And as I was doing that, it just like felt weird. I was like, something isn't right here. And I was like, I'm with all these other people. They know about bikes. I want to look cool. I don't want to be the weak one. It's like, can you fix the bike for me? Like, I didn't want to be that. So I just like kept trying harder. And what was happening was the threads on the pedal were ripping apart the threads inside the crank. 
and it was not fun. And the guy who was with me was like, whoa, whoa, stop, what's going on? Like the difficulty is showing you that something is wrong. Like you shouldn't just push your way past it. That's generally how we live. When we hit difficulty, it makes us stop. It makes us reevaluate. Is something going wrong? Should I be doing this? Am I sure that this is the right way forward? Jesus knows that that's how our thinking works. And so he tells us, hey, when difficulty comes along for trying to live a life in right standing with God, when people are confused about it, when difficulty comes your way, don't worry. That's actually a sign that you're doing something right. That's actually a sign that something good is happening. You know, we shouldn't be thrown off when we do our best to be merciful, to be peacemakers, to be pure in heart, and it ends up with us being left out or excluded or mocked or ridiculed. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus told us that. But that difficulty shouldn't make us say, maybe something is wrong with my relationship with Jesus. That's not what he would have for us. So keep that warning to the side, but... We also see where we end up. In verse 13, it tells us this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, normally, when we talk about sharing Jesus with other people, these are the verses we start at. We say, hey, we're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. Let's go do salty light stuff. And like, that's where we begin. And we just try to figure out like, what are the five steps that we need to do to be salt and be light. We just think about how do we do those things? Instead, we need to see that when we're set back to right relationship, Jesus doesn't tell us go do salt stuff or go do light stuff. He simply says you are those things. When we're set back to right relationship with Jesus, all of that happens naturally. Reaching other people for Jesus begins with simply being with Jesus. God doesn't want us focused on our five steps for being Christian today. He doesn't want us focused on the five things we need to do so that we can effectively win someone to Jesus or change someone's mind. He wants us to simply unanchor from the wrong opinions life has given us and anchor into him. And when we do that, just tell others about your new perspective when discrepancies come up. That's all it is. It really is that simple. Jonathan Pennington puts it like this. To be a disciple means to be an outward focused agent of the kingdom, inviting people to honor and glorify God. He doesn't say to be a disciple, you've got to do all those different things. He says simply being a disciple. It's just that you're naturally welcoming those outside into the same thing that you're doing, just spending time with Jesus. Jesus invites us just to be with him. And then when we're with him, he wants us to simply extend that invitation to others. 
So to close, maybe there's two different things that you need to do with these ideas. Maybe one, you need to think for a moment, has my perception of what Jesus wants for me been off? Maybe we've been focused on habits to develop. Maybe we've been focused on skills to gain or uh, good things that we want to do or anything like that. All of those things can be great if they're first rooted in the belief that what Jesus really wants is just for you to be with him. That's his first desire. That's the first thing he cares about. He just wants your relationship with him to be okay. He wants it to be set back to its right order and he wants it so bad he was literally willing to die for it. He was literally willing to take the penalty of that broken relationship on himself so that he could freely offer right relationship to us. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, Lord, have I been anchored in some bad ideas about you? And have I been caught up in some wrong ways of thinking about what it is you actually want for me? Have I been thinking I need to earn your love or do good stuff for you so that you'd be happy with me? Jesus doesn't want that for us. He just wants us to be with him. And then the second thing we might need to do with these ideas is we need to think, this is what we need to show the world. Before we show people, here's the stuff that you've got to do. We've just got to show them, here's the Jesus that wants to be with you. A lot of times when we go to tell people that don't love Jesus about him, we leave them with some kind of homework. We leave them with, well, you should come to my church. Do that thing for Jesus. And that's a great thing to invite people to church. I'm not saying that we totally give up on that. Or we tell them, you should go read this book. Or you should look into the ideas that you have. We leave them with something that they need to do. But we need to just kind of look back and remember, Jesus didn't begin us with stuff to do. He began us with the fact of, hey, that, that brokenness in you, I can do something about it. I can help you set that right. I just want you to be right with me.